This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. So this is a weird situation. Yehuda says to Tamar, What's the guarantee that I should give you, the collateral that I should give you until I give you the goat that I'm going to give you for your services? To which Batomer, she said back, I want your signet ring, I want your psil, which we don't really translate, as well as your staff that's in your hands. He gave it to her, he was together with her, and she became pregnant. So the first thing you have to know, whenever you go through the, the mice of Yehuda Tamar is that you have to be really, really careful. Although it seems pretty straightforward from the Pesukim that Yehuda was fooled by his daughter-in-law into thinking that she was a Zona, she was a regular woman for hire on the street, and that he was together with her, the Misora that we have in Torah Shabalpeh seems to be against that. Yehuda was such a great man, such a tzaddik, the tzaddik of all of his brothers, and the malchus comes from him, that you can't imagine that someone of his caliber would do such a thing. That's what it seems to be from Torah Shabbat Peh. In fact, the Yalkaruveni says, Yamach Shmam B'Zichram, may the names and the remembrance of anyone be erased, may it be blotted out. If you think that this is Pshat, Yamach Shmam B'Zichram, he says, because why would the Torah put this in? If it was just a random story of Yehuda, and granted it led to Mashiach, which is already a strange thing, but if it's just a random story that we're throwing inside here, why is the Torah talking about this? What happened here between Yehuda and Tamar was likely a form of Kedushin. It's like, likely that that was the Pshat. And now we just have to understand why. Why is it written this way and what's going on? For example, the Dastakanim, the Moshev Zakanim, the Hadra Zakanim, and the Rival, all Bale Tosfos. We're talking 1200s, 1300s in southern France, western France, etc. They all say the following. How could Yehuda be Makadashur? And that's the idea. She was saying, how are we going to be married to one another? To which she answered, he answered, I'll give you a Gedizim, I'll give you a goat. That the Kedushin would happen through a goat. That was going to be the gift. She responded that she needed a guarantee until the goat came. What would be my guarantee that that will be the Kedushin until that happens? And he gave her a ring. And according to this idea from these balitosis, it could be this is the first ring ever given as Kedushin. Now granted, it was not a golden ring, one without any signs on it, or an engagement ring that you get with a little diamond on top. It was his signet ring. But nonetheless, he gave her the ring as the original Kedushin, and then later on was going to exchange it for a goat. That was his plan. But the ring was given as well as two other guarantees. It could be that he even said, I have the right to take back my ring when I give the goat later on. I'm only giving you the ring for now, but the actual Kedushin will happen with the goat itself. And then later on, he was planning on taking it back. But nonetheless, we have this idea that a ring was given as Kedushin. Others ask, in the Rishonah themselves, where were the Edim for this Kedushin? Where do you have witnesses for such a Kedushin? If they got married, you need Edim. Where are the Edim? And they answer, Yehuda was a Chashav person. He always had people with him. So we had men with him at the time, probably Chira HaAudulami, as well as other people who were with him, going up to celebrate the shearing of the goats and the sheep that he had up, above, up, up on top of the hill. And he always went with an entourage around him at all times. So it makes sense that two of those people would have been the Adam, two people that he trusted, and they came in. Kohen is Rishonim. 
when the Pesukim say he thought her to be a Zona, when he saw that she was a Zona and said, I think she's a Zona, it must mean he thought that way and then realized she was a lady that he could be Makadish to. He was a, she was a lady that he could be considered married to and therefore you would have went ahead and married her. That's what the Rishonim say, the Mizrahi and the Gurari say, this is Pshat in Rashi. That throughout Rashi, he does not say that this is a simple idea of you to see a Zona in the street, a woman of the street, and is together with her. That's not what it means. The Mizrahi and the Gurari say it's a form of Yichud that they had back in the day that allows for a marriage to take place. But it was Yichud. It was that they were getting together in order to have a marriage. That was the whole point of it, right, which eventually led to marriage. So even though it seems like he's with the Zona, the Mizrahi and the Gurari go over and over and over again, this was not a Zona. This was not Znus. It wasn't just a random act. It's more than just that. The Moshe of Zikanim takes it a step further. Moshe of Zikanim says he never would have done this in the first place, but there was a Malach involved. A Malach pushed him in that direction toward her. He was going in the straight, straight path, straight up there. When he saw the woman on the side of the street, he turned away like anybody would. You don't turn to these types of people. And yet the Malach pushed him toward her. That when he was trying to move his donkey back on the road, the donkey kept going toward Tamar itself. And he realized, Mina Shamayim, that there was something about her that had to be done. And therefore, he decided he was going to get married to her. This was not just a random act, he thought. There's something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants me to do here. That's what the Moshe of Zikainim, the Moshe of Zikainim says. Tom Vidas for Sturmbach says, although this does sound a little crazy, there's Ramah in Evena Ezer, Simen Chav Zayin, in Reish Samach, I'm sorry, Reish Samach, Simen Asif Chav Zayin, Simen Reish Samach Asif Chav Zayin, that says that the Makor for giving a ring is Kedushin. Us giving a ring in Kedushin is from Yehuda. Because Yehuda did this, this is why we do this every time. And although it's strange, we never see anybody, it could even be from the Zohar, but although we don't see any Tanoim or Amorayim mentioned in the Gemara, or even in the early Rishonim, that giving a ring is the normal way to do Kedushin. That's the norm by us. But even though we don't see it in any Gemara, that a ring is given, he says it's the best thing to do because Yehuda did this. So strange, right? So why is that the Minig now, but it might not have been in the times of the Gemara? Why did that change? So Sturmbach suggests this, but it's a brilliant, brilliant answer. We have to understand, our Kedushin nowadays is totally different from the Kedushin back then. Back then, they were Makadish each other, they had a Kedushin, and then 12 months later, they got married, sometimes even more than that. The norm was 12 months. That's the first parak of Ksuvis, right? You have the Kedushin, the Arison, you're Makadish to one another, you're engaged, and then afterward, the Nisuin happens a little bit later. The Kedushin is a full Kedushin. It's not the engagement that we have nowadays. It's a full Kedushin. But the Nisuin was later. Now, why? Most likely, the simple idea was is that they had to raise the money for the wedding and they had no money. Or, simply put, she was too young. These girls got married really young. The guys got married really young. So it's likely that they pushed off the actual chuppah and the Nisuin for a little bit, but the Kedushin was done a little bit earlier to connect them to one another. Obviously, nowadays, it's very different. The Kedushin is done under the chuppah, right by. We even separate it with reading the ksuva. They never read the ksuva back then. There was no point to reading the ksuva. The whole point of reading the ksuva at our weddings nowadays, right, as long as you get somebody who reads really fast, that's the best idea. If you have somebody who's really slow, then, huh, good times. Might, have all, might as well have somebody speak up there under the chuppah, and that's obviously the worst thing in the world. But, right? but in between the Kedushin and the Chuppah itself, we have something that separates them, because we do everything together all as one. We have the Arison, and then the Nisuin, 
together at the exact same time. So it seems like there's a difference between what they did back then and what they have now. Now, you should know, once there is a Kedushan, officially, she still has certain things on her own. The husband does not have the right to them. He gains the right to them and is allowed to have the peros of that stuff after the chuppah. So back then, she had a full year where she got a gift from the husband. And that didn't go back to her, it didn't revert back to the husband until a year later by the times of the chuppah. Nowadays, as soon as she gets whatever it is for the Kiddushin, immediately the chuppah hits, which means it immediately goes to the husband. The husband officially owns it and the peros thereof, and that's that. There's one exception to that rule. The exception to the rule of what goes, that belongs to the wife, goes to the husband, is tachshitin. Anything that is jewelry of the wife is automatically hers. There are no peros. And that stays by her even after the chuppah. So now listen to this copper of Sturmbach. With all those introductions, here's the idea. Back then, when they got married with Kedushin, because Nisuin was so much later, they went up to her and they said, what do you want? I want to give you a gift. What's the best gift for you? And most of those women were practical. And they said, I'd like to have something for the next however many months or whatever it is. Give me something that's X. Give me a cow. Give me a goat. Something that I could make money off of. Something I could have. And for 12 months, she would own the cow. She would own the goat. She would own something like that. Get stuff out of it to get herself ready for the marriage 12 months later. Once the 12 months hit, if she hasn't already sold the cow or sold the goat or whatever she brings into the marriage, then it goes to the husband. So they gave her something practical, she used it, and then 12 months later they had the chuppah and that was that. But nowadays, there's no point. If you give her a goat or a cow, then it goes right back to you five minutes later. So they give her a ring. Nowadays it's done on purpose. That's the only thing she really gets to keep where the husband has no shaykhis to it at all, takshitin. So we purposely give a ring. That's the idea behind it. It makes everything different. That's what we do nowadays, and it makes so much sense. When did that change? It probably changed around the same time where Kiddushin and Nisuin changed. Around, I don't know, maybe 500, 600 years ago, when people started getting married immediately after having the Kiddushin, not doing the Kiddushin 12 months earlier, and there are still sects of Judaism that still do that, maybe that changed at that point, once that became the norm, then they switched everything around and they started doing rings for Kedushin based on Yehuda. But until that point, it made no sense. The ring is always going to belong to her. Give her something that won't be the husband's, right? That won't be the husband's for 12 months. Do that instead. But other Rishonim, this is all the Balatosis. Other Rishonim, no less than the Ramban, says clearly Yehuda did something which back then may have been more normal because people were able to have monogamy. They were able to, polygamy, I'm sorry. They were able to be married to more than one wife. That was allowed. And therefore, they did have more than one wife at a time. And therefore, they could be involved in these types of znus. It could be that way. But says the Ramban, the zonos back in those days, although they were, there was znus, were very, very different. See, we nowadays, we know that zonos to dress the part. They dress the part to convince people to be near them. The zonos in the days of Yehuda covered themselves up. She covered her face. What kind of a zona covers themselves when they're trying to do this act? But the pshat is, they acted this way on purpose. They wanted to be known as something that was different. They were on the side. If somebody needed them, they were available. It's a different type. So says the Ramban, although Yehuda did do something that was wrong, and he is blaming Yehuda for this, not like the Balitosis that are allowing him because it was considered Kedushin, but although he did something wrong, it's not as bad as it would be for a Guddle to do it nowadays. It was something that still had a normal aspect to it because people are allowed to marry more than one wife, and therefore, although he shouldn't have done it, 
it was somewhat of a normal thing to do, and that's the idea. The Mizrahi takes issue with everything the Ramban writes, the Gurari as well. They both write that can't be, there's no way, but otherwise, that's the Ramban's view, yeah. So you were allowed to. Yehuda, in fact, Rav Hirsch says this shows you the greatness of Yehuda, that he refused to have more than one wife at a time. That he would not even think of being together with a woman like this or marry into another family until his wife died. He didn't want to have more than one wife. But yes, at the time, in theory, you could have more than one. So in theory, he could have been together with this woman, right? And it wouldn't have been a problem. But the Ramban says, still, that's not the greatest out there. He doesn't like the pshat, but he goes into it and he says, that's the likely idea over here. The Ibn Ezra says, normally... You don't give three different guarantees for payment. That's not normal. To be able to say, I'm going to give you my signet ring, my steel, as well as my mata, that just doesn't make any sense. But because Yehuda had a tremendous taiva here, says the Ibn Ezra, he had a taiva that was there, therefore he agreed to give three different things, even though that wasn't the norm. This is way more. The Malvam adds, although the woman at that time would usually only take one thing, it would have to be something worth value of the goat. Over here, a signet ring, a staff, and a shirt normally wouldn't be the value of a goat. A goat is much more expensive. Nonetheless, she was willing to take it because Yehuda was so so it seems to go in two different directions, but you have that. But what were these things that he gave her? What were these ideas over here? So Rashi tells us, based on Targum Unclus, that the ring was a sealing letter, sealing letters type of signet ring. It had his symbol on the outside. I don't know what it was, an Aryeh, a lion, or a Yud for Yehud, or whatever it was. And he put it down, he would seal up letters with it, and he had that. Targum adds the word is kascha, some type of ring that was used over here. The psil he calls a shoshifza, a shoshifach, which is a light coat, sort of like a jacket, like we wear nowadays, a little shoshifla that he covered himself up with, similar to the word psil techeles, that he used it over there. The Ramban says, it, it makes sense that psil is a shirt, because I, I, but it doesn't make any sense that the psil was only a shirt, because what, Yehuda took off his shirt, gave it over to Tamar, and then walked around shirtless? For the rest of the week? That doesn't make any sense at all, says the Ramban. Maybe it was a second shirt, he says, that was actually tzitzis. He had a normal shirt, and then he had a second shirt that he put on top that was tzitzis, and he gave her the tzitzis, says the Ramban. That's the idea behind it. The Maral Diskin, though, looks at that and says, you would give her tzitzis? Why in the world would you give your pair of tzitzis to this lady? That doesn't make any sense. And it's us to give tzitzis to somebody else over there. Maybe he did it on purpose in order to show that he wasn't, didn't mean for her to keep it. Nonetheless, it's a strange thing. Paul, what were you going to say? Um, why do we, if he was, according to Malin, that the Yehuda was so kosher, why do we need to give three at all? Why was he didn't all? technically. He gave all three because she asked for it, and they weren't, they were valueless, according to this Malbim. But nonetheless, she was willing to take it because he was still a hush of a guy. That would be other behind it. Then the Ramban says something interesting, and this goes into what I think is the real shot over here. The Ramban says, maybe it refers to a headkerchief or a shawl or something like a wrap that they used. And it could be that it's all the same. Why don't you put sitsis on a scarf? Why don't you put this on a regular scarf? A scarf is a four-cornered baguette that you wear as clothing around you. I'm sorry? Of course there was somebody in Israel with that. I once saw a guy with a jacket, a jacket like this, that had the cut right down the back. He squared off the corners, and he puts this on it. Regular scissors. Now, you have to go. That hole has to be, like, by normal jackets, right? It only goes, like, a third of the way up or something like that. It has to be more than halfway up altogether. So you saw he cut it all the way up. And then put tzitzis on all, it was four, four corners, one, two, three, four. They actually did it by these jackets, you know, the rounded off or whatever it is. Plus it doesn't go more than halfway, so you're not high. But what about scarf? Why doesn't that scarf have it? So there are a bunch of different reasons. One of the reasons why is because they're not big enough. They're not big enough to cover up your entire body. You need something that will cover up at least most of your body. It's a certain sheer, a size. If you get a really large scarf, 
you have a real large problem on whether or not your chayiv insists. If in theory this scarf could be done. Now because this scarf isn't worn in the normal way, you don't wear it on top of your body, you wear it around your neck or you go around that, then it might not be the way. But if you have a scarf that you would normally wear that sort of wraps around your whole body and goes like that, it might be chayiv. It might be chayiv in something. Yeah. That are that wide and that big? You realize that he lived 40 years ago. Oh, okay. Then he's come back. Okay, then it's good. Right, it goes around. I will tell you, it makes a lot of sense over here to be able to say that they had this huge shawl, scarf, bedsheet, because psil also means bedsheet, and they had something like this, where psil does not mean shirt. It means they had this large sheet they used to wear on top of their clothing as they were shepherds, and for that, they used to put actual tzitzis on it. So all of these pshatim combined together. The Ramban says he wouldn't have taken off his shirt. You're right. This wasn't his shirt. They wore long robes. And on top of that, they put something on there. And that's why I wrote this picture over here. Any shepherd you've ever seen has this picture of like this little headband thing with like, you know, with it, like the kafi, I think they're called, that the Arabs wear where it goes around. Well, Yuda had a special one that went around all of his clothing that actually acted like one other pair of tzitzis as if it was that. And he might have put it up on top of his head as well. That's what he did, almost like a kippah. What were you going to say? I'm sorry? It could have been a cloak as well that he put on top, like almost like a vest type of thing that he put on top. The point is there was something like that. And the Rashi, Rashi therefore, is answering the Ramban's question. The Ramban said, wait, what do you mean? He never would have given him his own shirt. Of course he wouldn't have. But he would have given him the extra piece of clothing. And it seems historically that's exactly what they did. I don't see any issue with Rashi at all. I don't know what the Ramban's asking about. Rav Ari Kaplan says the custom back in the way was that they did this. They wore a long tunic reaching to the feet with a short white cloak thrown around them like a shawl. Sometimes it went on top of their heads, sometimes it just went around their necks, and they wore this, and that way they had something. Besides that, they always had a seal, and they walked with a walking stick. You've seen every shepherd walks along with a walking stick of some sort, right? They all had that, and that's what you'd have had, and that makes sense that you, she would ask for all three, because that was something that was cheap. You for sure had more of them, and you would go ahead and give something like that. Mizrahi says also, it was a chashuv talis cotton. They used to wear on top of their clothes. No way he was wearing no shirt at all. It wasn't the regular shirt. The Bear of Asad even says it was his talis that he wore for tefillah. He had an extra talis that he wore for tefillah and he gave her his talis, his actual talis. That's the idea behind it. Ksava Kabbalah says they also had the shawls and whatever it is. He goes into this as well. It makes the most sense to be able to say this. Then it Siv says, I don't know where he gets this from. He says it's likely that the shawl was sky blue. I don't know why he says sky blue, but if you look on the, what's it called, on the Choshen, each Shevet obviously has a stone, and each Shevet has a color, right? So he might say that Yehuda's color was sky blue, it seems a little bit off that way, but let's say it was, it was sky blue, and on that, that, that shawl that he had, he had a picture of a lion that everyone knew it was Yehuda's shawl. And that was worth money. It was a very chashev thing. Only the Bnei Shvat and the Shvatim had it. No one else had it. It was something that was so chashev. Everybody knew who it was. Everybody knew it was his for that. The Ramban gives another answer of the Pasil based on Chosam, whatever it is, but that's the idea behind it. Now the Rashbam, Rav Sadigon, and the Sforno all agree with Rashi regarding the ring. But they argue that Pasil is not referring to the shawl thing. The Pasil was a belt. 
The psil was not a shirt. It was not a shawl. It wasn't anything else. It was a belt that they used to wear, a little belt that went around. Psil as in a string that they used to tie around themselves to be able to go almost like a gartel. Like we have gartels. They had a little gartel that went around as well. If you look really carefully at the picture, you'll see over there, this guy also had one. I'm sorry that it didn't come out as well as it should, right? But that psil as well was like that, that they used to put it around. He wouldn't be expected to give something that he would wear, she said, that, that says the sworn of the Rashbam. The Rashbam says he wouldn't be expected to give that, but a belt he can take off and give to her that wasn't a real problem. The sworn says they represent you to strength, and he goes on, but that's the idea behind it. The Chiskuni says she specifically took things that he could live without, but would want back the next day. Something like that, his ring to show who he was, his staff to lean on, a psil that would tie the wool together. He used to tie the wool together with these strings, so maybe he had like a whole thing in his belt, like a little, you know, like a bunch of ropes in which he would take that off. And when he sheared the sheep, he would tie the wool together to put it together, maybe something like that. But the Balaturim says something special. Psil is the same letters that you use in tefillin. So he gave her his tefillin. Now, as a timeout, I had no idea that any of the Avos or the Shvatim were tefillin. I realized that we have a Gemara in Erevin that says Avram Binu kept all 613 mitzvos. I always assumed that meant that he did the Indian behind tefillin, but not that he had actual tefillin. According to this Balaturim, this is the tour. That means that Yehuda had a pair of tefillin. I don't know what he wrote down in there or what was in there, but he had a pair of tefillin, and that's what he gave over. So it would have been, it's weird, very weird, but the Chosim would have been his, his ring. The Psil would have been tefillin, and then he would have given as well the mate, which is very, very strange. The Panach Raza says the exact same thing. But if somebody would ask me if they had tefillin before Matan Torah, I wouldn't have said yes. I would have told you, you no, know, the Indian of tefillin they had. I wouldn't have said tefillin. But apparently, according to these two Rishonim, the Torah and the Panach Raza, they did have tefillin at the time. As for the staff. Now we get into really crazy Midrashim. The Balatrum says there are two times the word matcha appears in Tanakh, and the other refers to the staff that Moshe Rabbeinu used to hit the Yeor to make the makos happen and to cause Kriyas Yamsuf. That's the idea behind it. This mata that was used to make the makos and split the sea and cause the sea to go back on the Mitzrayim was the same staff used by Yehuda right at this point, which means that the staff of Moshe was hundreds of years old. Staff that Moshe had, it was not something that he had on his own. It was Yehuda's staff from years earlier. Now it goes on. Midrash Yilamdenu, which is a type of Midrash, says the same staff over here was used by Yaakov Inu to split the Jordan River. Yaakov had a makil, not a mate, but makil that he used to split the Jordan River. It says in Parshas Vayetze that he went with the makil that he had. He used to split the Jordan River to cross the river. I don't know why he went that way and not up north and then east through to, you know, to go to Lavan. But regardless, he crossed over the river, he used this mata over there, and says in Mishalam the same mata that Yaakov Avinu had went to Yehuda and eventually to Moshe Rabbeinu. That's what he says. Torah Shlema says it wasn't Moshe's, it was Aaron's staff. Now, as a timeout, there was a massive machlok as if Aaron had his own staff or if Aaron's staff was the same as Moshe Rabbeinu's staff. It seems like Aaron and Moshe's staff were different because Aaron's staff is one that flowered after Parshish Korach when he put it inside. And it does seem that he was specifically told to use Aaron. Aaron was going to hit the river instead. I don't know. I don't know if Aaron had a separate staff or it's considered the same staff. I have absolutely no idea. But assuming that there are two different staffs, then Aaron's staff was one over here and it was used by every single king in Malchus Yehuda up until the base of Mikdash was destroyed. And when Sidkia died, it was buried along with the base of Mikdash itself and was over there. In Shmos Paragdalet Pasuk Yud Zayim, the Balaturim says something totally different. So over here he's saying that this Yehuda's staff became Moshe Rabbeinu's staff, but in Paragdalet Pasuk Yud Zayim in Shmos, he says there are normally, and when you have certain letters, Shatnaz Gates, 
a Shin, Ayin, Tes, Nun, Zion, Gimel, or Tzadi in the Torah, there is a crown of almost like three little things going up from it. Anybody who's laying knows this. You look in the Torah, Shatnaz gates. Those letters, right, seven letters, have a little crown on top of them. Three letters on top. Says the Balaturim, there are four tagin on top of the hay of Hamatis. So first of all, hay does not normally have tagin at all. There is no crown on top of the hay. And this hay happens to have four tagin. So he says the following. Hay is the gematria of five. There are four tagin. That's nine. Five plus four is nine. Because there are nine people that had this staff. Who are the nine people that had this staff? Adam Rishon gave the staff to Hanoch. Hanoch gave it to Noach. Noach gave it to Shem. Shem gave it to Avram. Avram gave it to Yitzchak. Yitzchak gave it to Yaakov. Yaakov gave it to Yosef. And Yosef eventually was given to Moshe. That's nine altogether. There's two problems with this measure altogether. Number one, the Atra Zadar pointed out immediately. Hanoch never lived to see Noach. Hanoch and Noach did not live at the same time. There's no way Hanoch saw Noach. Hanoch saw Mesushelach, and Mesushelach saw Noach. But if you add him in, then you're missing one. So the Atra Zadar says there's a mistake. It's not four crowns, it's five crowns, five, uh, five crowns on top of the hay. So there are ten people, and that's what he refers to over here. But aside from that, he said it went to Yosef, not Yehuda. Over here, the Balaturim is saying the same staff that was given over to Moshe Rabbeinu is Yehuda's staff. But over there, he's saying that it's Yosef that had it, not Yehuda. He gives some answers. There's no real good answers. Maybe it's because Yehuda gave it back to Yosef. Yaakov gave it to Yehuda. Yehuda gave it back to Yaakov. Yaakov then gave it to Yosef. Maybe that's what happened, but he doesn't give a good answer for it. But now we get to the Pirkei de Rebeliezer. Pirkei de Rebeliezer takes it to the next level. Perak Mem, he says this staff was created Erev Shabbos Bein Hashmashos. That the Mate of Moshe was created Erev Shabbos Bein Hashmashos was given to him in Gan Eden. Adam Marishon received this staff as a gift from God in Gan Eden on the sixth day before he was kicked out on Shabbos, after Shabbos is over. And he passed it down before he died. He gave it to, Chan, to Chanoch. Chanoch gave it to Mesushalach. Mesushalach gave it to Noach. Noach gave it to Shem. Shem gave it to Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu gave it to Yitzhak and then Yaakov. And here's what happened. Eventually it got to Yosef. When Yosef died, has anybody heard this measure before? It's good. It's the sword and the stone measure. When Yosef died, Paro took it and brought it into his treasury and left it there. When Eov, Yisro, and Bilam were the three advisors to Paro, Eov kept saying nothing. Yisro kept saying, save the Jews. Bilam kept saying, destroy the Jews. When Paro decided to destroy the Jews, he turned to Yisro and said, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. You kept sticking up for the Jews. I don't want you around anymore. So he kicked Yisro out. But before Yisro left, he said, for your service, you can pick anything you want out of my treasury. Take anything out of my treasury. It's yours. He knew the staff was special. And he took the staff out, knowing it had Hebrew letters on it that he could not read. Those letters, by the way, were a machlokis. Rabbi Yudah says it said, Ditzach Adash Biachav. The Rabbanon say it said, Dam He took that staff and brought it with him to Midian, Yisro. And then he stuck it in the ground until he built his tent. When he finished with his tent, he went back to the staff to pull it out, and he couldn't pull it out of the ground. Couldn't pull it out of the ground. So he said... Anyone who is strong enough to pull it out of the ground will get my, my daughter Tzipora as a wife. Crazy Medrash, right? And in the end, right, Moshe Rabbeinu came 
after he had saved Sipora and the other girls from the well, right? He came back. He sees a staff lying in a bunch of dirt right outside the tent. Maybe there was a line of like strong men, you know, trying to grab it out. And immediately goes, picks it out of the ground. He brings it over to Yisro. Yisro sees it and says, you are the one that owns the staff. You're the one who's going to be Goal the Jews out of Mitzrayim. You're going to be the redeemer of the Jews out of Mitzrayim. I don't know how, I don't know when, but you are going to be the redeemer. Unbelievable measures, right? Moshe Rabbeinu then used that staff and on it were the Makos and that was the staff that was originally given somehow went through to everybody over here. What happened to the staff? Some say it was buried with Moshe Rabbeinu after he died. After he passed away, the staff was buried together with him or it was taken from the heavens. The heavens pulled the staff up and the staff went up with, with, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Some say that the staff came from the Eitz HaChayim in Gan Eden. Remember guys, there was an Eitz HaDas that other Marishan ate from. The Eitz HaChayim was the other tree and that the staff came from there, from that tree and was given over to him. Either way, do you understand this for a second? Yehuda's got a staff that's 2,000 years old. That's such a precious staff. It was handed down from generation to generation. And he, this girl says to him, give me the staff as payment. And you think this is znus? There's no way. Who would give this up to a zona? A random zona? It just doesn't make any sense. To a one of ill repute, you're going to give this? I think this is the greatest proof in the world that this could not have been a regular case of znus. That it was purely kedushin. And although we don't understand it, and although the words seem to say otherwise, there's no way you would give up this staff to anybody but a future wife. Somebody who you know is going to be your future wife. So he was trying to be Makadishur. He's even showing his trust his belief that she was going to come back to him by giving over the staff. And although he got messed over because she disappeared at first, because Tamar knew that Yehuda wouldn't be happy with what she did, nonetheless, it shows that she was a very special person in what she was doing over here. I think this shows that there was way more to this than just there. Now, the Kliakr says, Tamar asked for these three things because it highlighted how bad it is to be together with a Kedesha, with a woman of ill repute. When you're Mevaze, the Os Bris Kodesh, the Chosam, the seal that God made for us, the Bris Mila, by being together with a Kedesha, with a woman that you shouldn't be together with, you're degrading not only the seal, the Chosam, the signet ring, so to speak, you're also degrading your status as a king represented by a rod or a staff. The Mata, you're a king. Mamleches Kohanim, the Goy Kadosh B'nai Yisrael are known as. We're a kingdom of Kohanim. We don't do these types of things. People like kings don't get involved with such things over here. That's being Mavaza the seal. That's being Mavaza the shep, the, the, the rod. And so too, when it comes to the seal, whatever the seal is, your sign, your, your, your shirt that shows what type of a person you are, it's Mavaza that as well. Maybe it's the tzitzis. And if it sits us, there's a Gemara Menachos Memdala Menachos. Now, if you don't know the Gemara, I'm going to run through it. This guy would heard that he was together with every zona in the world. He heard that there was a certain woman that lived across the sea in which she took a large amount of money for her, weight, for her, for her actions. So he paid the, the fee up front. He sent her the money and then said, I'm, I'm going to be there soon. I want you to wait for me. When he got there, eventually he was supposed to go up these seven beds. She was sitting on top. And in each bed, you're supposed to take off something. On the first bed, he took off his pair of tzitzis and the tzitzis slapped him in the face. He sat down. He started to cry. She came down. She said, what happened to you? 
right? And he said, he's not beautiful enough, he's the ambiance. He said, everything's great, I can't do this. I can't do this. The tzitzit slapped me, I can't do it. The Gemara uses that, at the end of the story is, yeah, he married her. So the, the, the moral of the story, the idea is that tzitzit is supposed to protect you from Arias. Says the Kliyakar, by him taking off the tzitzit and giving them to her, it didn't stop him from doing that action. It didn't stop him because tzitzit is something that protects you from Arias. He took off his tzitzit. If a person constantly wears tzitzit, it'll be a reminder not to do such a thing. That's the idea behind it. And maybe the lesson behind all of this is to simply put protect ourselves, whether that's by wearing tzitzit constantly, even at night, even though there's no chiyuv. To wear it at night. Nonetheless, there is something to wearing tzitzis at all times to be able to do this. To remember that we're leaders. We're powerful people. We have our mata. Kings don't do this. They don't do things like that. And remembering our connection to our Baruch our os bris kodesh, our chosam, to remind us of how great we are and what kind of people we are when it comes to stuff like that. Now, there is a Rabbeinu Rabbah and the Rabbeinu Bechaya that say that the three things represented what she wanted from Yudah's kids. She said to Yudah, I want our kids to have Malchus, represented by the Chosam, the Sanhedrin, because Sanhedrin used to wrap themselves in Talos, as well as the Mate, I want Mashiach to come from these actions. And that Yehuda promised her that that would happen. Rabbeinu Bechaya said there were direct descendants that were included here. Zerubavel, who's also Nehemiah, Bitzalel, the one who created the Mishkan, and David Amalek were all promised as well. The Shach as well goes through something over here. But there was a much deeper meaning behind it, says the Kliyakar. Tamar asked him what he would give. And he, what she meant was, what's the tachlis of this relationship? What do you want to get out of this? Yehuda, what are you thinking trying to be together with a woman like me? What are you doing by being together with a woman like this? What's the tachlis? What will you give me for this? So she said, Gidi'izim. B'nai Yisrael are known as the tzon of HaKadosh Baruch Tzon are not only sheep, they're also goats. I'm planning, I'm leading the Jewish nation by doing what I'm doing over here. I'm planning on that happening. To which she said, she said, what would be the guarantee that such a thing will happen? What is the guarantee that you can give me to promise me that this all happened? To which he said, I promise the Mashiach will come from this situation. And that was the Chosam. That's what the Kliyakar meant. Psil is the color of Tcheles, the light blue, right? Psil Tcheles, in which we refer to the Kisei Akavod, the Kisei of, the, of, of where HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes everything happen. The Mate is the Vav of Elioh's name, the promise that Mashiach is going to come. And the Chosam, obviously, is again, the seal that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made with us is a bris, that everything will be perfectly fine. I'm going to skip that Tferis Yonason over here to get down to the Chosam Sofer and Taurus Moshe. It could very well be that Tamar only wanted to see if she would give him the staff. She would, he would give her the staff. Now, we already said before how awesome that staff was, but there might be something else behind it, behind what that staff meant. Yehuda was to do Yibum here. Now, remember, nowadays, well, not even nowadays, we don't do this anymore because of Abba Shol, but there is a halacha that when one has the ability to do Yibum, it happens only if, there's a boy, there's a, a man that marries a woman, does not have any children. He dies, and then that woman has to go to one of the brothers to do either Yibum or Chalitza. Okay, one of the brothers is able to do it. If the man has any children with her that survive after his death, even if they die immediately afterward, she's not chayv to do Yibum. She can marry anybody else she wants. She doesn't have to do Yibum with the brothers. But if there are no children then the lady will have to do Yibam or Chalitza. And it's still, we still do Chalitza nowadays. It doesn't happen often, but there was one not too long ago in the Chicago basement. Right? But you do have such things as Chalitza. Yibam we don't do anymore because people are not doing it for the right reasons. We assume they're not, so we don't do Yibam. But that's the concept. Back then, before the Torah, 
not only brothers could do Yibam, but close relatives could as well. In fact, I have a shear from a couple of years ago about Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky's view of Yibam before the Torah, which is an amazing Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, how Yibam applied in certain ways and only by certain people. But there's a halacha. A king cannot do Yibam. If the king's brother dies, the king does not do Yibam, the king does not do Chalitza. That's considered degrading, and a king does not do Yibam or Chalitza. Now the question was, Tamar had this Shiloh. She knew she wasn't being given Shayla. After she had married Aaron Onan and they had both died, she knew Shayla was not going to marry her. She knew she was going to be basically a living widow for the rest of her life. She had to do Yibam, but there was a chazaka of death. So Shayla wasn't going to be given to her. She took matters into her own hands and she wanted to marry Yehuda. But she wasn't sure. Is Yehuda allowed to do Yibam? Technically, a father back then could do Yibam. That wasn't the issue. Even though he's not a brother, that was allowed. But is Yehuda considered a melech? And if Yehuda is a king, a king can't do Yibam. So she wanted to know, is the king right, able to do Yibam or not? But what do we know about Yehuda in the beginning of this partial? What's the very first word of the parak? By Yehud Yehuda. Yehuda went down. Says Rashi, Raid Migdulaso. Yehuda was a great man, a tzaddik and a king. And because of what happened with Yosef Atzadik, he downgraded his status. He was no longer considered a king. So Tamar wasn't sure about this. So she said to Yehuda, she said the chosam nepsil. She said, will you give me your mate? The scepter of a king, the shevet of a king that a king has, is not allowed to be used by any other person. So she said to Yehuda, will you give me your mate? If you're willing to give me your mate, your scepter, then I know you're not a king. Because somebody else, you're giving it to somebody else. If you won't give me your mate, then I totally understand I'm not going to be together with you because you can't do yibum. So she was hinting to him. He didn't know what she was saying. But she was saying, can you do yibum or not? How do I know if you can do yibum or not? Will you give me your mate? When Yehuda was willing to give his mate because he had gone down from his status as a king, he wasn't a king right now, and said, here, Tamar, you can have my scepter, you can have my mate because I'm not a king right now. Then she said, fine. Then I'll be able to be together with you. If you don't have the status of a king, you can do Yibum. Now I'm going to be together with you. And that's how she knew over there. That's a brilliant shot brought by the Chassam Sofer and Taurus Moshe that it was all about the Mata, all about that to see whether she would give it or not. We already had a shot before that was only about the Chosam. This is that it's only about the Mata whether she was willing to give it or not. But altogether, we have an amazing, amazing Pasuk. The first thing we started off with was whether or not this was considered Znus or Kiddushin. And we mentioned all the different Rishonim that say, all the Balitos that say, this was Mamish Kiddushin, real Kiddushin, that the Mamish got married and that it wasn't a problem. But the Ramban argues and the other Rishonim seem to argue as well. Right? We give the Eben Ezra, the Rashbam, the Sforno, etc. We then went into what he gave her. What was the Chosem? What was the Psil? What was the final, the, the Mata itself? We even went into the Midrashim. How this Mata may have been given on, passed on from all the generations all the way back when. This was an awesome Mata. And then we went through the message that Tamar was trying to get to here. How bad it is to be together with the Kedesh and how to protect oneself from it. That was the Kliyakar. Then we went through the Medrash that the deep meaning behind it, what she was trying to say, I want Mashiach to come from this situation, and finally the Torah's Moshe, and how she knew through the Mata that Yehuda was able to do Yibum with her. We'll stop with that, guys. Have a great Shabbos.